Okay. Uh, Pius and elaborate treatise concerning prayer and the answer to prayer by John Brown of Wamfrey. We'll be looking at the second part of chapter 13, which is uh, the chapter concerning the right manner of praying to God. John 14, 13, and 14 is the, um, the verse that Brown is contemplating. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <coughs> so, we're up to the fifth thing <coughs> that is to be studied uh, in the manner of right prayer. And I think um, there are 13 things that we're going to be looking over today. Um, well, we'll be looking at 5 through 13. We've looked at the first four. And there are a number of digressions on, an, on, on several of these points, some of them longer than others, uh, in order to flesh out exactly what it is he is trying to get you to understand. So, um, let's begin with 279, question 279. What's the fifth thing to be studied in the manner of right prayer? And what, what he says is this. Uh, if we understand that God is the Spirit unto whom we are praying, then our praying ought to be spiritual. He wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So he's looking for more than just um, what the Bible would call lip service or an outward conformity. So <clears throat> that takes um, takes on a number of particulars that he wants us to consider what that would uh, what that entails. So 280 particulars it includes. Uh, so the first particular, A, is that in order for us to pray spiritually, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What's the Ephesians 4.23? It says we have to be built up a spiritual house to the end that we're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice. You'll notice that word spiritual coming up a lot. That's his point. Right? It has to be spiritual. And the only way we're going to do that is, first of all, through the renewing of the mind. Right? You, the, uh, and what he's pointing at here is something that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians where he says that... Um, Only the spirit knows the things of the spirit. But the mind of man, the carnal mind of man, uh, can't possibly understand, can't encompass uh, these kinds of things. So the mind has to be renewed. Right? It has to be... Um, 
has to be uh, expanded so that it is able to um, to comprehend not just the outward letter, not just the um, outward conformity or point or principle of conformity, but that inward conformity, uh, that spiritual bentness, right? We, uh, which we, we lack, um, frankly. You know, we we don't have that by nature because of the fall. And so there has to be a renewing of our minds. Second, <clears throat> and this is really, I think, an expansion on this. He says we have to have a spiritual frame and disposition uh, while we go about prayer. And, and he, he points to Ephesians 5.18. He says, look, this is the problem with drunkenness. This is the problem with being satiated with carnal delight. You cannot possibly approach God in a proper spiritual frame when what you're doing is you're, you're fanning the flames of the flesh. Which is why fasting is so... Yeah, fasting is exactly the opposite of the indulgences that are being condemned. I mean, the Bible, the Bible condemns gluttony and drunkenness for that reason. And so fasting is, uh, you know, more conducive to that frame of mind. It's a good means to gain better control. <clears throat> All right, third, or C. He gets this one from Romans 8, 26. Uh, he says, Our petitions are to be framed by the Spirit who helps our infirmities and makes uh, within us intercession for us. We don't exactly know how to pray or for what to pray. So we're, you know, at, at best... We're, we're kind of turned in a direction. But the Spirit of God in us, if we are believers, the Spirit of God in us is going to um, lead us, in, in a sense, in a way that we do not know. Right, so, uh, I know there, there are... Um, there's a, a big... At least uh, one time there was a big emphasis on this verse in Pentecostal circles. Um, the Spirit helps us pray in groanings which cannot be uttered and, and an appeal to praying in tongues and all of that. It's not what, what, what is in view here. What is in view here is that the, um, the Spirit taking up what is lacking in us um, even after we're born again. You know, this is not about praying in unknown tongues. It's about uh, praying with that spiritual frame that uh, we talked about in the second point, uh, which is going to 
allow the spirit himself to be at work. Like we're not going to constrain our prayers. This is um, what he's what he's talking about here is really why the Reformed churches have been so uh, tended to be so um, uh, averse to set forms of prayer, liturgies of prayer. As helpful as that can be, uh, particularly to get people started praying, uh, we don't have a liturgy of prayer in the Presbyterian Church. We have a directory for public worship, which gives us guidance concerning the things for which we have to pray. But there is implied in that the idea that you need to be reliant upon the Spirit of God to pray aright. We're not we're not going to give you um, a bunch of constraints, but we're going to give you some direction, and you you really need to rely on the Spirit of God to to move in those directions. Right. Fourth. Oh, D. Our prayers are to be active, lively, and piercing. And as he says, not dead and lumpish. I like that word, lumpish. But what he means is we're to go about prayer uh, with the Spirit active in us and through us and not uh, basically praying kind of like a bump on a log. You know when you're you're actually engaged in prayer and when you're just sort of going along. And he's saying that we we need to be uh, careful that we remain actively engaged in this matter of prayer. All right, fifth, or E... Is our soul has to be at work in prayer, not our body only. Otherwise, it's only going to be a fleshly and not a spiritual service. Now, again, there are uh, and have been recognized in the Bible. Uh, there are certain postures which are more appropriate to praying, and others which are less appropriate to pray. You know, it's not that bodily posture is nothing. Um, There is, as in everything we do when it comes to uh, the worship of God, there is a certain amount of reverence that ought to be reflected, you know, in in our outward comportment. But that's not either sufficient of itself or even uh, the the thing that God himself will have respect unto. God is looking at the heart. 
Um, these other things are helps to us and to those around us that we maintain uh, a more reverential disposition. But as far as the prayer itself, if the soul isn't engaged, you can't possibly be uh, praying spiritually. And if you're not praying spiritually, you're really not praying. All right, sixth or F, he says we have to approach God in prayer uh, by the Spirit as carried in His arms. He points to Ephesians 2.18 that our access to God who is a Spirit is by the Spirit. So again, although our our souls are engaged, we ought not uh, be self-reliant in praying. We need to be aware uh, of our need and dependence upon the Spirit of God. Uh, Seventh or G... most of our desires our most earnest praying should be for spiritual things so Matthew 6.33 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness very often people uh, people have asked me you know, or or said to me, I prayed about X and um, nothing, nothing, just nothing. You have to ask yourself, you know, were you praying for this, seeking first the kingdom of of God, right? Seeking first uh, His righteousness. Or were you seeking something that was pleasing to the flesh? You know, it, the fact is that I think even the most hardened uh, unbeliever from time to time will offer up a prayer for something that would please the flesh. That's not really praying to God. You know, if all that you're worried about are outward things, if all that you're worried about are are things that pertain to this life, if your focus is on that, if that's everything that you're praying about takes its rise from that, um, you you are in disobedience to God uh, in, in the fact that we're, we're told here to seek first the kingdom of God you know, people I've had people say to me I just can't um, I can't do this I can't worship on my own I can't um, maintain you know family worship I, I need to adhere to uh, or, or attend where there's some 
corrupt worship or teaching going on. I've prayed about it. My guess is you haven't. You prayed. You haven't prayed this way. Yeah. <clears throat> but then again, they're not resting on the help of the Spirit to get them through that. They're trusting in, in men of corrupt. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, uh, you can, it, that's exactly how you know that they're not seeking first the kingdom of God, right? They're seeking their own comfort. They're seeking mm. their own um, rest. They're seeking their own uh, pleasure in all of that. If they were concerned with God and His glory first, that thought as an option. See, what happens is a lot of times options are removed from the table once you do that. Things that you thought or you convinced yourself, well, that would have been acceptable, you realize couldn't possibly be acceptable if you're seeking first the kingdom of God. All right, so you're not going to take those things off the table if your first concern isn't God's kingdom and, and his righteousness. Yeah. And even then in those cases where people want to go to a corrupt communication because it might be easier for them because it'll, it'll avoid less suffering. Well, if they're doing the right thing and suffering, that's glorifying God and, and like the apostles, they can yes. rejoice in that, right? Yes. Yeah, there, there is, you know, we're called to fill up the afflictions of Christ in our bodies. Right. There, there is, um, there is a, a, a call to a certain amount of, of suffering. You know, and it, you can, can run this question through your head, but you know, if you if you, if you ask yourself um, who suffered most in the Bible, it's Jesus. And if you ask yourself who did the most good in the world, it's Jesus. And you have to then say to yourself, well, there probably is uh, a connection, right? So there's probably a reason why that God is making you suffer in certain ways. Um, you're being brought to suffer in certain respects. Right? But the fact is, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, it's much more easy to reconcile that to yourself and... and and find peace in that uh, than if you're not. Because if you're not, you're always looking for uh, a way out that is quite probably not, uh, strictly speaking, uh, lawful. All right, eight, the eighth point, or H. Um, he says we have to be, we have to remember that when we're seeking temporal things, it should be in its due subordinate place and with a spiritual frame of heart. In other words, we're seeking the things that we do seek in this world, we should be seeking them in order to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? We're not seeking, remember what James says, you know, you, you ask and you have not because you, you pray and you want to have these things so you can satisfy your own lust. So God doesn't give them to you. But there are things that you can receive, temporal benefits that are bestowed in answer to prayer. When you are praying, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Remember, you know, if God answers a prayer, 
and you haven't had that foremost, but he answers some prayer for some temporal blessing, more often than not, those, those temporal blessings turn out to be curses. Israel and the quails? Yeah. <laughs> it, it happens a lot. Right, ninth or I. Uh, he says, in our prayers, all our end and design and all of it should be spiritual so that God's name may be glorified. That his kingdom might come, he might be obeyed and exalted, and so on. So again, this is about ordering uh, your affections in prayer. You have to order your thoughts, you have to order your affections. Right? You have to order everything. You have to place spiritual concerns above temporal concerns. You need to seek God's glory above your own salvation, even. Again, and I would point out again, I pointed this out a number of times, but frankly, I think one of the great uh, strengths of of our catechisms, the larger and shorter catechisms, is they both begin with a question asking what the chief end of man is. And both of them answer uh, that it's, first of all, to glorify God. Everything else in that answer, you'll see, is, sub- is subservient to the, to the idea that we ought to glorify God. That thought, if you would just simply meditate on that, you would be so much closer to following these particulars that Brown is laying down here. Right, so the tenth, <clears throat> J, uh, tenth, is that our motives to prayer, or putting up a particular petition's needs to be spiritual and heavenly, not carnal, low, and selfish. Again, he's telling us we have to examine our motives. It's very easy for us to pray for things that we desire according to the flesh, for selfish reasons, right, or lower or base motives. It's much harder for us to pray and really desire the kingdom of God to come unless and until our minds have been renewed and we have the Spirit working in us. Because those kinds of things, they don't work any pleasure in the flesh. You're not sitting there, you know, getting that warm and fuzzy feeling thinking about that. You know, you if you to just pause here before we move on to the next thing, consider so many churches today construct what they're doing in worship, particularly, but in a lot of other activities. These things are constructed in a in a fashion to please people, to draw people in. How do we make this interesting to people? Rather than challenging people as the gospel does 
uh, to become interested in God. You know, the, the whole point of the gospel is God is already interested in people. That's why the Son of God was incarnate. God doesn't need to prove anything, and He hasn't set it in the hands of the church to dumb down this proof. What more? What more could you possibly do to demonstrate God's interest in sinners than God Himself has already done in sending His Son? There's a special music and special programs and. And interesting, you know, trips and and um, uh, you know jokes and all, all the things that they do to try to draw people in. Those are things which appeal to people's flesh, right? People like to be entertained. They like to be caressed. They like to uh, be stroked. To the you know, they like it when when they're sense of self-esteem is being raised. But churches that do that are doing exactly the wrong thing. Like they're, they're doing exactly at a corporate level what people are doing at an individual level when, for example, they drink to excess. Like they're, they're coddling the flesh. And the Bible commands us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. The Bible uh, commends to us the putting to death of the old man. Think of it as a mercy killing. You know, because it's either the old man or it's you. You know, either the old man dies or you're going to die in your sins. And so in appeal to Christ, you know, you you can be strengthened to put to death and mortify sin in the flesh. But if not, it's going to kill you. Spiritually. Alright, 281. What's the sixth thing to be studied? The manner of right prayer. Uh, And then a couple of other questions. Why? And what is the correct principle behind praying? So the sixth thing is Brown says we need to be very careful uh, thinking that by our prayers and petitions we could really change God's mind and move him to alter his purpose. And the reason is that our God is a true God and therefore he's unchangeable in himself and in all his purposes and resolutions. As Job 23.13 says, he's in one mind and who can turn him? He says, instead... The right, or the correct principle is that this is a commanded duty, praying, and the means appointed to the Lord, whereby mercies and favors will be obtained, and and I would add to that, whereby promises 
will will be fulfilled. Right? Your prophecies will be fulfilled. So I think it's a little bit broader than what he's talking about here. So while you are not going to change God's mind, that is, you're not going to alter God's eternal purpose, when you understand what prayer is, you should understand this. God's purposes, uh, if, for example, if God purposes to save someone, uh, he's his purposes will include moving people to pray for that person. That's what happens in the Old Testament, right? With Daniel, right. exactly. And it, and it happens. You can you can expand that to encompass everything, right? If God purposes to do this or that, um, one way that we have an indication is His purpose will move His people to pray. Now that presumes we, we need to make sure that we're numbered among his people and we need to of course make sure that we've observed this hierarchy we just talked about in the previous point you know don't confuse your desires or your purposes for God's purposes uh, but once you've untangled that when God moves you to pray about something very often it's a, a good indication that God intends to do it. We're not, because of our sinful natures, uh, we're not in a state of perfection. So we're not always going to understand uh, those kinds of spiritual motions correctly. Nonetheless, the more sanctified we are, the more we are likely to interpret them correctly, and that gives us greater reason. Um, as we're sanctified and as we pray, we we actually um, we're actually in a position to take more comfort and find more assurance and more confirmation of all that we believe through praying. God wants us to command Him in prayer. He's told us to pray uh, for certain things in His Word. He's told us generally to pray about other things in His Word. So when we get to the end of the generalities, sometimes the Spirit moves us in particulars within those generalities. Right? We have the general rules of the Word. When we're sanctified, um, when we're in a course of faithfulness, when we're attentive to that, you know, we're we're much more likely to pray in faith and praying in faith we're much more likely to see that achieved, the end of that prayer achieved, or what the, the Puritans would call 
return of prayer. You're going to get an answer. On occasion, the answer is no, or occasionally the answer is not now. But, if God is really moving someone to pray, I think it's a good indication that he intends to do something. So if you don't really care about some, you know, some situation, you don't really care about somebody, it's probably a good indication God intends nothing good for that situation. Beyond whatever temporal benefits are are being thrown that way. All right, the seventh thing to be studied in the right in the manner of right prayer and why. Seventh thing is um, we have to make sure our prayers are in truth and in sincerity. And the reason is the why. the God hates hypocrisy and double dealing. He's a God of truth. That really shouldn't be a big surprise. God is a God of truth. You don't like it when someone talks to you uh, and their hearts are not really in it, right? They're they're paying you lip service and you know it a lot of times people don't generally like that Um, God knows infallibly who is and who's not just paying lip service and uh, the Bible is pretty clear he doesn't like that right 283 (coughs) how then do we perform all our prayers in uprightness truth and sincerity through this list. So first, uh, we should hide nothing from God but pour out our hearts when we pray. He points to Psalm 62.8 and Psalm 119.26, for example. And even uh, in Psalm 139, where David desires God to search him out and discover discover it himself. Right, so the idea there's you know you, you want to deal with God um, with a policy of open transparency. Uh, frankly nothing else of course works, right? I mean God knows everything anyway. So praying to God about something and you know sort of acting in your prayer like your affections are different than they are let's say Um, you're not fooling anyone except maybe yourself you're not fooling God and so Brown is saying look don't do that it's hypocrisy you know, if you're praying for someone to be converted, for example, and you really don't even like the person, don't even care about the person, maybe you know what you should be doing is praying. Not just maybe is what you should be doing, is praying 
that you are rightly affected toward that person as you pray for them. You shouldn't stop praying for them. Uh, you should pray, but you should be also be praying that you would be rightly affected. You know, and, and again, you can you can take that principle and apply it in so many things, right? It may have to do with something uh, that you have to do, a duty that you have to accomplish, but you don't you you don't really want to do it, right? Don't try to fake it with God and and pretend like I, you know, I really want to do this. I really want to honor my parents, you know, um, but I I don't. You know, if you don't, then the first thing you need to do is very openly in your praying to God say, "Look, I, I don't even want to do this, but I know I I'm supposed to do this, right? I know I'm being commanded to do this. This needs to change, right? Until you start praying like that, nothing will really change." Because God isn't going to hear the prayers that are coming from painted lips. God hears the prayers of the beggar, right? And the beggar yeah. knows that he needs something, that he lacks certain things. Correct. And that actually adds the importunity to prayer. Because when you know that you lack something, when you really need it, that's going to make you more, much more importunate yes. than someone who just knows that he doesn't even know you need it. Yeah. All right. 283B, or the second point here is... Our lips should not go against or without our hearts. That is, we, we shouldn't pray for that mercy which our hearts do not desire to have, uh, nor to be delivered from this, that sin which we desire to hold fast. Right, so again, this is that idea, you know, don't, don't pray, O oh Lord, deliver me from this sin or that sin. Um, be a little bit more honest about it. Remember, if you if you read Augustine's Confessions, you know Augustine basically prays to God at one point and says, "Oh Lord, deliver me from my sins," but not yet. All right, I, I want to enjoy them a little bit longer. That at least has um, that at least has honesty carrying it, and there's a certain recognition. You know, of course, when you hear yourself say that, it, it should it should actually check your spirit. You know, and say, "What? Why don't I want to be delivered from these sins? Why am I content uh, to to gad about in these sins?" But we we need to be very very careful. You know, a lot of times people. You know, pray pretentiously to God. You know, again, remember, you are praying to the true God who knows everything about you. You're not hiding anything. You, you might as well be honest about your approach, right? I don't want to be delivered from this sin, but I know I need to be. That'd be a better approach. You know, and I know I need to be not because of any way I feel, because I know. You know, I know what, what's been said in Scripture. All right, um, third or C. 
says, be careful not to harbor anything wittingly and willingly in your heart that might hinder return of prayer. In several places, uh, the Bible tells us, if we regard iniquity in our heart, God will not hear us. Psalm 66, 18. Uh, Job 11, 13 to 15. Matthew 5, 23, he references here. And, and there's, there's more to that, right? I mean, this is exactly why the Bible says he will not and does not hear the prayers of the wicked. They're an abomination to him. God, God does not um, does not hear when we regard iniquity in our hearts. So again, you know, you have to look at it when you're praying. If you want to pray a right, um, this is a matter of of um, it, it's it's me or them, right? It's either me or it's my sins. One of us has got to go if God is going to uh, have mercy on me. My sins have to go. If they don't go, I am going. And I'm not going anywhere good. Right? Fourth, or D. Uh, he says we have to be ready to use all other lawful, lawful means, uh, lawful and commanded means, to come by that which we desire in prayer. And so if we're praying for grace and against sin then we need to pursue grace we need to avail ourselves of the means of grace and we need to avoid, suppress um, struggle and strive against our sin again there's no middle ground Fifth or E. It says we need to beware of all affectation in prayer. When you pray in an affected way, uh, it's hypocrisy. It, it turns your prayer into a stage play. God isn't fooled by your theatrics. So be careful. Is that, would that also be, um, you know, there's that the mention of the Pharisees who for pretense make long prayer and Things like that, where you're, you're yeah, it can, it can. I mean, be I understand that's putting sure. on a show for men, but almost like doing that or trying to. I don't know. I've heard people say sometimes they have a difficult time praying around other people because they feel like they don't use the same kind of language they do, or they don't know as much as they do. Or when I hear this person pray, they use these long, big words, and it's intimidating. That that kind of thing, where where somebody's, I don't know, 
going over and above to the point where it's just just get kind of get to the point. Um, it can be it could be that you know there there needs to be a, a certain amount of reverence and and framing of spirit and, and framing of words when you know you're praying publicly on behalf of people. So there's going to be a difference in that regard. There should be. Um, the idea that uh, that you know, for make great pretense and all that, yeah, that's a problem. And sometimes, uh, in fact, probably more often than not. You know, long and drawn out prayers are pretentious in that respect, particularly when in, in a public context. Uh, not always. I mean, you know, the Westminster Divines, when they were meeting, very often the, uh, the divine that opened the assembly that day would pray for an hour. he was probably praying over everything that they were going to consider that day and had considered maybe the day before and would come before them. And that's right. I mean, that that's what you would expect in that sort of setting. You want to be careful in everything. But yeah, it, it can it could turn into pretentiousness. All right. Sixth or F, we should singly aim at the glory of God, confess our sins, that He may be justified when He speaks, and clear when He judges. Very careful, he says, not to sound forth our own praise or commendation. Um, we're aiming, or we should be aiming at the glory of God. All right, seventh or G. He says, our affection should be moved and wrought on suitably to our petitions. So, for example, if we pray against sin... We should detest it and loathe it. If we pray for grace, we should love and prize it at a high rate. And, and there again, what if you don't feel that way? Then you should be praying that you would. So is part of the idea too, obviously, proper prayer is from the heart first. So any outward dressing... That that does happen should come from the heart and not be something artificially or sort of painting on the outside of it, like acting like you're more you're, outraged at the sin problem you have than you are. So your your pretensions to have some artificial Holy Ghost going on in you right. are not fooling God, right? Because He sees the heart, right? Yeah. But if that but stuff is coming out honestly, that's a different story, right? And you're the one that knows if it's honest or if and you're God sort of forcing it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Hmm. 
there's no David says in the Old Testament, like in the, in the Psalms a lot, like you know, like like search my heart, see if there be any yes. like, way in me. Like I'm being honest here. Yeah, we. I mean, we ought to in, look. This is part of the problem with um, living in the kind of culture we find ourselves in. We're not morally or spiritually outraged enough, frankly, at what's going on around us. You know, we tend to look away when things are said and done, which are not just... um, they're not just rude, they're, they're, they're downright wicked, right? There are things that are downright wicked. And as Christians, it's our job to be in the salt and light of the earth to do something about it, right? Yeah. Which is where we get into Alexander Henderson's... Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we have, we, we have some obligation to, um, to say something. not to let everything pass all the time. Now, I, I understand and, and, you know, it's understandable that there are times and there are places where these kinds of responses are going to be much more uh, profitable and, and you actually have uh, the time, as it were, to pursue it, right? to to make it, um, from your point of view, efficacious. Uh, that, that doesn't happen, uh, it's not all the time. I mean, this is not a matter of, you know, driving around town with your window down and just screaming at people as you go by about every morally objectionable thing you see. Right? On the other hand, um, very often, in very different contexts where we have the opportunity and ability to, you know, rebuke. Uh, and, and rebuke doesn't always have to be stern, but there's an opportunity to rebuke something that is spiritually or morally um, out of line, and we just pass over. That's a big problem. So we need we really need to get our affections right. Our affections are out of order. And and this is, you know, when, when Paul says to the Philippians, he's talking about those who are enemies of the cross. You know, he says their their God is their belly, their emotions. Right? People who set their emotions up and are guided first by their emotions. Paul says they're enemies of the cross. Your affections need to be subordinate to your your uh, your reasoning and and your belief. Is that why in the scriptures you see when when uh, like the, the heretics would go after the women in the church because they would lead them away captive because women are certainly in the Bible portrayed as being more susceptible to that sort of emotional manipulation right but when men are men men who are susceptible to that are described as effeminate you know if you want to if you want to understand why when you when you hear these uh, these hipsters and people today talking 
uh, that they they have this very soft spoken acquiescence in in um, you know moral degradation. Uh, the answer is they're they're enemies of the cross, and they are you know they're effeminate, uh, and their effeminacy is precisely because their emotions are being allowed to lead them rather than uh, their faith and, and belief. You know, they, don't, they don't have these things ordered. It's not that we're to be uh, stoics. We're not, you know, as if we're not to have, you know, emotion. Um, but emotion has to be subordinated to and kept in control. It can't lead. It should follow. So your sort of liberality, because a lot of these sort of modern, to go back to like the hipster types, um, a lot of them obviously are very socially liberal in terms of seeking equity for, let's say, the downtrodden people, whether whatever their de- definition of downtrodden people, that's up for debate, I guess. But um, a lot of the, a lot of the pursuit seems to be out of this. Well, I just feel bad for it. That's not that's not the proper. Yeah, they're, they're right. They're, I mean, there's there's a good reason to be concerned for the poor and to be concerned for people who are being mistreated. Right. Right. There's a case for certain types of social justice. Right. But that case is not when I see you know mm. when I see people living like that, I feel bad for them. Right. That's an emotional response. Like, like there's no social justice for sodomites because you, you think like, oh they're, they're they're both two people you know we gotta love them but there is no social justice for that kind of no there you can't you can't um, uh, dismiss the moral dimension mm-hmm. which is what happens when you begin with your emotions mm-hmm. right you're going to dismiss that sort of thing and you can't do that that's why that's why Paul says people who whose God is their belly that they've They've made they they've made their emotions uh, their their idol. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, right? And they'll remain that way. You know, you can't. In fact, you, you see that some of these people now you can't even talk to them, right? They're offended by everything. I mean, these are hyper emotional people, and I mean it's it's like a caricature of what the Bible is concerned about in women. It's way beyond what like normal women don't even behave that way. So these these people that are behaving that way, it's way beyond you know what Paul would characterize as silly women being led captive by you know heretics, right? It's way beyond that. It's to- they're, they're emotionally entirely out of order. And, and the problem is, you know, one, one reason it's such a horrible thing. You can't you can't reason with someone's emotions. That's right, because their emotions replace fact, right? They, they replace everything. Sense they, of they 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 replace you know a, a proper sense of right and wrong. <clears throat> and Jesus had emotion. Yeah. All right, he did. Uh, in fact, um, uh, it was Voss who wrote an article <laughs> for the. Uh, Either, I think it was him, not even Warfield, um, but one of them wrote an article for, uh, I think it was Princeton Review, on the emotional life of our Lord. It's a very good article. Uh, it's very helpful to to envision because you know Jesus shows us uh, 
the proper place for emotion in life. Like there is a proper place for rage, but it should be dictated by the law of God. You know, Every, see everything wicked. everything should be kept within order, mm-hmm. right? When you have when you have uh, what what the Bible would call an inordinate passion, right? In, it's an inordinate emotion. Your emotion is uncontrollable. You can't contain it. You you can't um, in any way uh, circumscribe what that's doing, right? You just you can't. You and you keep you you'll tell other people, I can't, I can't, I can't. I just I just feel this, I just feel this, I just feel this. That's inordinate and that's that is sinful, right? It's inordinate. Your emotions are meant to be kept in order, and the order is not to disturb, uh, you know, the rational pursuit of the faith. Okay, let's look at the eighth H two eighty three H. We should pray with our whole spirit soul and mind, with judgment and understanding, with will and affection. He says, a hypocrite is a divided man. A sincere man is holy what he is. So again, we're not saying you don't have emotion or you don't have, as he calls it, your affections. Your affections ought to be set in a proper direction. You have to be regulated uh, by faith and, and a, uh, a due deference to the, the law of God. I mean, that, this is... The failure to do this exactly why you have people say, well, I don't, I don't understand how this or that could be wrong when it feels so right to me. Rewind when you said it feels so right to me. You've already told me exactly what's wrong. Okay, that's not a reason that is sufficient to justify your emotion or the actions that flow from a disordered passion. Right, ninth or I. This is our whole strength should be at the work. What's Ecclesiastes 9.10? Whatever we do, we should do with all our might, without reserve. It's a prayer shouldn't be like an afterthought. It's not what you do when, you know, you've basically reached the end of your ability to do anything else. It should be pursued with all, all the strength. And then 10th or J... Says we, we shouldn't labor to express or signify more with our words than is really within. And that's I think what you were asking about earlier with the, using big words and and long convoluted sentences and all of that. Um, look, 
what you should be praying is what is flowing out of a heart that is attuned to grace. Don't try to to um, make something appear to be there that's not. And oftentimes it's just merely an, an Abba Father, something simple. Yeah. A cry for help, right? Not necessarily a great very, very often, Very often, short, sincere prayers are going to be more effectual. Right? When we sit there and, and, and agonize, and, I, and again, I'm not saying there's a time and there's a place. This is why I think when we started this, I suggested you know get it, uh, keep maybe keep a prayer diary, keep a a list of of uh, things, people, things that you're praying about or praying for. Right? You want to be able to to just uh, maybe have something to uh, prod you to remember to make mention of something in prayer. Because again, if you're praying sincerely, not hypocritically, if you're praying out of a right motive, the very fact that you're praying uh, for this or that person or for this or that thing, that's already, I think, an indication uh, that God is purposing uh, to uh, deal with that matter, right, or deal with that person. I can, I, I mean, on that, on that count, I can tell you, there's a guy I knew who was witnessing to me at, at um, my job years ago. And I left to go to college. And he went to a prayer meeting. And at the prayer meeting, they were each asked to put the names of two people on the table to pray for them. And even though he hadn't seen me in a while, I was one of the two names he put on the table. And they were praying for me the night I was converted. That I know. So, it's it's a difficult thing to measure from this side of eternity. Uh, but if God is putting in your heart to pray for someone or for something, you should do it, uh, provided it's lawful, you know, according to the glory of God and all of that stuff we've been talking about. All right, eight uh, two two eighty four. Uh, 284 which is the 8th thing we studied the matter of right prayer and then why and uh, the question against what should we guard ourselves so we when we speak to God in prayer he says we ought to be present in our minds What he means by that is, um, and he illustrates this way, he says, you don't go before a king to talk to a king, and while you're talking, or should be talking to the king, 
you're gazing off, you know, at the window, uh, daydreaming, right? Don't do that. And he's saying, don't do that with prayer. You know, when you're praying, be present. It's one of those important things. Actually be there. Right? Prayer is not something uh, that is effectually undertaken on autopilot. Uh, the reason why is he says it's unseemly for us to be speaking to God in prayer while our minds are are roaming and roving over all kinds of things pertaining to this life. Okay, so this is important. This is actually a very important point when it comes to public prayer, right? You're, you're not just an auditor in public prayer. You should be participating. That is, you should be paying attention to what is being said and continually adding your amen to it. Consenting to it? Yeah, consenting to it. At, at every point, you know, every petition, you should be adding your consent. You should be present for it, right? Don't don't allow yourself to rove. It's a bad thing. It's it's hypocrisy. It's a sign of hypocrisy. So he says um, we should guard ourselves against this is C twenty four C uh, the wandering of our hearts by remembering what we're about. You know, we should remember who it is unto whom we're we're come to pray, and we should consider how much advantage we give Satan when we are not present. You know, when when you can you can mark us down spiritually speaking as not present. Right? God is watching. He's attending the prayers of his people. You know, and he's he's looking, he sees what's going on in your heart. And Brown is saying there's a sense in which he's, uh, not only can he see, but uh, Satan is aware. You know, Satan is able to read body language probably better than anybody. And, you know, God is marking you either present or absent. You should be absent. Right, 285, what's the ninth thing to be studied the manner of right prayer? It says we should be fervent in prayer and zealous because we're serving such a great king. Fervent and zealous. So 286, um, he begins to give us a list wherein this fervency uh, fervency should appear. So first, or A, he says, our hunger and our desire will be greater after spiritual things than after carnal things. This is how we know uh, whether or not we're actually fervent in prayer.
know, are you more desirous for your temporal food or for your spiritual food? For your uh, temporal clothing or for that spiritual clothing uh, that Christ provides in his atonement? You know, it has to be greater to spiritual things. Right. Second, he says, or D, this true fervor will set us as much, if not more, on secret and private prayer as on public prayer before others. So if you're fervent, you're going to be fervent not only in public, but in private. This is you should be at least as fervent in private, if not more, than you are in public. Uh, third or C. Again, he says this true fervor will appear in secret as much, if not more, than in more public prayers. So he says, if you seem to be more fervent when you pray publicly than you are when you pray privately, uh, it's not good. Maybe a sign of hypocrisy? Yeah, not a good thing. And I would just say, here's where, you know, um, when you read the psalmist or you read... uh, different people who are praying in the Bible. Very often you'll read things like, you know, they're pouring out their heart to God. Or they're praying and they're like Hannah, they're weeping. You know, there's there's more going on. They're, they are presenting themselves before God as beggars. You expect there to be more fervency in private prayer than in public prayer. And, and this is tied in with matters of decency and order as well. Fourth or D. He says, if our zeal is for God and His glory, he said, we're, we're going to be fervent in our prayers even for our very enemies, that they might be converted. We ought to be praying that the kingdom of Christ is enlarged and Satan is spoiled of his prey. Hmm. 286E, fifth point. Is where uh, this true zeal in prayer is, there's going to be more care to have the heart kept warm and the affections boiling than to have what he calls expressions high and raised. In other words, 
the volume and temperature, spiritually speaking, is going to be higher probably than what is on display. And six or F, he says there we care to shake off all sluggishness, all sleepiness and drowsiness, uh, because these make us pray as if we were not praying. Two eighty seven. Tenth thing to be studied the manner of right prayer and why. We should not be rash or inconsiderate or hasty in rushing in before the Lord's presence. And the reason is God, the God to whom we speak, is great, holy, and jealous. And he doesn't want to have his name profaned or taken in vain. How do we labor for this cause? A, first. He says we should labor first to have our spirits wakened. Praying man should be a waking man because a sleeping man can hardly speak sense or know well what he says. Second, he says, we should labor to have our hearts freed from the hurry of the things of this world. This world is full of deadlines, cares, concerns. He says, you have to, to pray right, you have to cut loose from all of that. Third or C. We should be composed such that we lay aside other cares, even of lawful things, considering the presence into which we come, the presence of the true God. sure to observe the frame of our spirit to see if it is in any lively fit and suitable frame. Make sure there's no distemper, doubting, faithless doubting. Need to uh, take a little bit of a spiritual inventory. Fifth or E. We need to see what spirit we're of so that 
there isn't any perturbing affection or inordinate motion of the heart or unlawful desires riveted in the soul. Well, we have all of that emotional or affectional turpitude, uh, we're not going to pray aright. F, the sixth thing, we should make sure our hearts are in some measure under suitable apprehensions of his great and glorious majesty with whom we have to do. Be impressed. I think this goes along with the idea, if if you were walking into the presence of some very important person, you and, and everything in your life, in a sense, depended on it. You really wouldn't be thinking about anything else. You would be focused. Kind of like a walk into a job interview, and that's yeah. nothing. Right? And then uh, seventh or G. We should have our eye on all inviting occasions so that we don't let any of them slip away. In other words, when whenever the Lord by his dispensations calls us or invites us to pray, we should uh, take hold of that as an open invitation. <clears throat> Right, 289. It's the eleventh thing to be studied in the manner of right prayer and why. So, we need to be careful and watchful when we're about our praying. The reason why, he says, and this is, I think, a very important thing to consider, again, we're speaking to the true God in prayer, and we want to be careful that we actually obtain a blessing rather than procuring a curse. So, 290, why are we commanded to watch in prayer. There are five points or reasons it gives. Uh, first, is because he is a holy, pure, and heavenly God with whom we have to do, and he will not be mocked. Which we don't, we don't want to miscarry and provoke him to anger. Two ninety D second point. Um, why we are commanded to watch in prayer is Satan is ready and busy to distract, distemper, divert, and trouble us. 
with sinful thoughts and suggestions and so on. We need to remember that in the midst of all of our praying, every time you go to pray, the more you're disposed to pray, the more likely, at least at first, uh, you're going to meet with some kind of distraction or temptation. From the world, the flesh, and the devil? Yeah. Right, third, or C, we have to watch because our hearts are naturally tricky, false, and deceitful, and very much prone to step out of the way and forget a praying frame. Fourth or D. He says, by neglecting this watchfulness, we actually um, prejudice ourselves. Because we're not going to be able to lay hold on and improve the assistances as the Spirit gives in prayer. So we do so... fail to do so to our own, our own hurt. The fifth reason for carefulness, uh, watchfulness in prayer, is if we're not careful to watch in prayer, very quickly everything can turn to dead formal superficiality. And our service can end up being heartless and lifeless. <clears throat> I guess you could also say, if you're not careful, if you're praying against, for say, for example, a certain sin, if you're not careful in watching, you maybe start thinking about that sin that you're praying against and be diverted from the whole purpose of praying against that sin. Could be. All right, 291. What does this careful observing include? So again, first, A, this is includes keeping our hearts in a spiritual, lively, sincere, and zealous frame. Second, he says, and this is important, I think, very important addition to that point. He says, when um, when anything is wrong in the soul, he says, we ought to be careful not to foster it, but labor to remedy it immediately. <clears throat> so don't cherish it, don't um, coddle it, Choke it out. Ninety-one C, third. We need to be careful that we don't suffer wandering thoughts to lodge there, right? As we're in our minds as we're praying. 
But on the first observation, he says you should hush them to the door. Show them the way out. But don't dwell on them. Fourth or D. You should not suffer any unbeseeming, irreverent, or unbelieving apprehensions that might be suggested by Satan or anything else to get in the way. Don't do it. Ninety-one E. Fifth, we need to be careful to keep a harmony between our heart and our tongue. We said this before, but we need to be careful we don't express what our heart doesn't think. That is hypocrisy. This is going to be a problem. You know, hypocrisy is a problem. Which is why he keeps going back to this idea. Right. F or 6. We should be careful that what we utter with our tongues is suitable to His Majesty. Uh, Not offensive, so that we have no unsavory or impertinent speeches. So, there should be... uh, you're, You're speaking to God there should be a certain amount of reverencing, right? There should be care. Don't, you know, you don't address God in in common, informal ways. You don't, you think about this as though you're coming before, again, a person of high rank and station. You know, you, you don't want to, speak in an offensive manner. You know, not that God is going to be offended per se. Um, he's not moved by that, but your doing it is indicative of a problem. You know, something already that's problematic. Right, seventh or G says you need to make sure the heart is kept in an open, receiving and welcoming posture and an eighth or H uh, that the heart is kept in a humble waiting and hearkening posture to see what the Lord says and what return of, of uh, prayer he gives Ninety-two. It's the twelfth thing we study in the manner of great prayer, and why? Uh, it says we should pray with understanding and a well-grounded knowledge, so that we'll ask in prayer uh, that which is agreeable to the revealed will of God, and that we do so for our own good and, and for the glory of God. And the reason why he says is otherwise uh, you can expect no return 
but what is contrary to our sinful, ration and considerate desires. So 293, what does this entail on our part? Because there are a few things it entails. First of all, A, uh, we should be well acquainted with the will of the Lord revealed in His Word. Second, or B, we should be sound in our judgments, not entertaining any error or mistake. Third, or C, we should labor to be free of any carnal interest, because that's going to bias us. And that could be problematic when we pray. Let me just say on that one, um, by the way, that churches today, um, because of their various views on Romans 13 and and um, other ill-held views regarding magistracy. Uh, you have churches that are, you know, taking one side or the other in political debates in, in this country and around the world that are, um, that are really fights among unbelievers. And people are praying, you know, in an unqualified way for the success or or not of you know, the, say the President of the United States um, without any considerations beyond that. And the problem is that while, you know, all of these people tend to do things that are uh, sometimes helpful and sometimes harm, harmful uh, to uh, Christians or to the true religion or to people in general, that flows ultimately from the fact that they are not uh, sound Christians, if they're Christians at all. And their individual religiousness, um, whatever it might be, is not and cannot be sufficient to overcome an irreligious, immoral, and godless constitution. Uh, so there's a sense in which, you know, when, when these people go to war, uh, we should be standing back when, when they're fighting among themselves and just saying, um, you know, what part do we have in that conflict? 
it's not to say that you know we have to remain morally neutral or fail to recognize moral um, the validity of moral points, but it is to recognize that quite frankly, you know, unbelief is um, a far greater sin, as Samuel Rutherford, uh, for example, points out, than sodomy. Sodomy is against the law of God, but unbelief is against the gospel of God. The grace of God. And the grace of God, yeah. And, And so, you know, their unbelief is the problem. And to you know to think that that's going to be sorted out on this lower level of, of morality is to embrace a false worldview. We can't. We're not going to be saved by the law, but if they were saved, their laws would reflect that. You know, if they were Christians, things would be much different. So you know, there's a reason why. Uh, as Reformed Presbyterians, we don't vote, we don't serve on juries, we don't serve in the military, don't take oaths of office and all of that. And, and I think it really actually dovetails quite nicely with what Brown is pointing out here. The, you can't pray a right when you have that kind of bias that's going to come in. To carnal, the carnal interest is that I want, I really want the Democrats to win, or I really, really want the Republicans to win, or something it's more broad. It's broadly. a party interest rather we than want, I really want. We want the military know. to do well in their latest invasion. Yeah, of, regardless whatever. of whether or not it's moral. Right. Yeah. Latest invasion for the Jews. So it could be. It is. Uh, the problem is unbelief. Unbelief. You know, and the problem. You know, that's the problem that we have. Um, why the Jews are so troublesome is their unbelief, and they're they are they form a conspiracy against uh, the truth. The Zionists hate Christianity. Right, fourth or D. Uh, we should labor to be kept from sinful passions. These will quickly blind our judgment, pervert and corrupt our prayers. So it says, James and John would have prayed for fire from heaven upon the city of the Samaritans that refused Christ's logic. This is actually tied very much in, isn't it, with uh, the idea that our affections need to be in control. So we can, we can be outraged at their, their lack of moral clarity without... Uh, without going beyond that, if our emotions are better controlled. 294, the 13th thing that we studied the matter of right prayer and why. Uh, he says, look, if, if um, we should have right apprehensions of God and faith in his nature and attributes, uh, and he cites Hebrews 11:6, he that comes to God must believe he is. This is the reason why is if if we have if we're unbelieving or have unsuitable apprehensions of God, we can't pray to Him rightly, because we have no confidence to find our supplies in Him, nor can we keep a due distance. Right, so the last thing that we will address is in connection with this, and that is. Uh, 
To what titles and attributes should our faith be fixed when we pray? This is a pretty good list. So first, he says, um, our faith should be fixed upon God being the true and living God, the fountain of life. He's not like the dead idols. Second, we should be fixed upon God's infinite, uh, his infinite being and incomprehensible, uh, incomprehensible being. Right? He is infinite and incomprehensible. We cite Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Right, 295C. Uh, his omnipresence we should be uh, fixing upon his omnipresence which fills everything he, he's filling everywhere he's everywhere and that encourages us or should encourage us to pray anywhere we are and there's no place we're going to pray God isn't there so this gives us a good reason to pray everywhere and all the time Right. Fourth, we should seize upon his omniscience. It's knowing he tries heart and reins. Nothing is hid. Fifth, he says, fix your faith upon his unchangeableness. He is the same being from everlasting. So he actually hasn't been moved or changed in his mind or purposes and so on. Sixth, we should be fixed upon his all-sufficiency, whereby he can supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. Seventh, we should focus on his omnipotency, Nothing is too hard for him. These are all good attributes. Eighth, should focus upon his sovereignty, whereby he does what he wills and follows what methods he pleases and transcends our thoughts and hopes. Ninth or I, we should focus on his riches and uh, riches in grace and mercy. Because that's going to give us encouragement. Tenth or J, we should fix our faith upon his truth and faithfulness as a God that keeps covenant forever. Again, that would encourage us to hope and Give us, uh, give us reason to be patient and confident of a return of prayer. Eleventh or K, we need to focus upon His holiness, purity, and righteousness.
He says, that's particularly helpful when we're praying against his enemies. And then 12th or K, we should focus or fix our faith upon his wisdom. Because that, his wisdom lets us know uh, that no matter how intricate the case, how difficult, um, he can see it through to the end. He isn't going to get, you know, sidetracked by any of that sort of thing. All right, in the next chapter, we're going to be looking at the right way of prayer uh, being cleared from the fact that God is a Father. So that'll be our topic, Lord willing, next time.